we've got a new episode of Swings and Mishes coming up for almost 50 years. All year cooling has been the place that keeps all of South Florida cool. Listen, it is April, and then you know, living here in South Florida, summer is coming, and you do not want to wait to have your system checked. You do not want to wait to replace your unit. You know how this goes. It gets very hot here, basically from the end of April into May and all the way through the summer into the fall. To give you an idea, 10 years ago, I called Tommy Smith at All Year. He is the owner. He's been the owner, he and his family, for decades. And I purchased a new unit from them. And here we are, 10 years later, I've had absolutely zero issues, and they have the best customer service of any air conditioning company I've ever used. In fact, I think I may have called Tommy twice personally in 10 years. I needed some help. And within the hour, they're at my house. They show up very professional they do a great job and then i'm good to go for months and months and years they're incredible in fact if you schedule a new unit installed before the afternoon they will come and put a new unit in your house in the same day no one in south florida can guarantee that they offer up to 60 month financing and remember i personally use all year cooling and tommy has been a personal friend of mine for over 10 years you call him you let him know you want a cool unit in your house this summer don't wait till june till it breaks down you have to do it now call 866-381-3554 or while you're listening to this podcast take your phone out go to their website allyearcooling.com click on the call now button you'll get connected directly to them and by the way my friend the owner tommy smith you can text him directly from your phone from the website right now and he'll set you up all year cooling is my personal place to go they keep my home cool they keep my family cool for more than a decade the number again 866-381-3554 Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to another episode of Swings and Mishes. I'm your producer, Jeremy Taché, joined, as always, by our host, Craig Mish, chock full of information uh, this afternoon. So, Craig, how are you doing today as the Marlins are wrapping up their four-game series with the Chicago Cubs? Well, I'm really focused in on the Little League playoffs where I'm at here now. <laughs> and we won our first game, and we're going to play again soon here. Whether or not the, the weather holds up, we have no dome. So hopefully we can hold <laughs> off a couple of hits and a couple of wins and see what happens, see how far we can go. But in terms of the Marlins, yeah, I mean, the on the field has been more or less the same as to what we've seen. And so we kind of dredge through this unfortunate season of of poor offense and good pitching and that's kind of what we've seen here since we lasted the podcast a week ago yeah you mean to tell me that the little leaguers are dealing with the shadows no i'm kidding um it is with <laughs> with uh lots of rain lots of shadows we're we're trying to get through yeah, it here no roof is really uh a killer these guys but yeah with the marlins a couple of walk-off losses to the Cubs too. I mean, really, the ultimate pitching has been has been great, especially the starting pitching, uh, with not a lot of offensive support. But specifically, the guy who's been the most dominant throughout this season, and really one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball, that's Caleb Smith. 
I mean, again, on Tuesday, Caleb Smith, six and two-thirds, five hits, two runs, a career-high 11 strikeouts, one off of your request of 12. Almost. And he's now at a uh, 2.11 ERA. He's got a .89 whip, which is just outstanding. Um, but I think a lot of Marlins fans, the better players that are under good contracts perform – the more concerned that they get that these players are going to be traded away because that's the PTSD that Marlins fans live in. Um, Caleb Smith has been dominant. Craig, how great is Caleb Smith, and, and is he here for the long haul with the fish? Yeah, we talked about this on the podcast last week. I think there are really only two kind of untouchable pitchers on the team, and, and as I said last week, and I'll say it again this week, it is him and Sandy Alcantara, more for, I believe, Sandy's age than anything else. He's 23 and has not yet quite developed into the pitcher that they think he's going to be. Mm -hmm. I think anybody could get traded, but I would not include Caleb Smith in that. And, and this is coming from, from asking questions. I, he's not going to be traded. If the Marlins are planning on being competitive in two years from now, because I think at this stage it's very hard to see them being competitive again next year, but we'll see. Maybe they have different plans. Either way, I think two years from now is the goal. And at that point, Caleb Smith is only 30 years old and cheap. So it just doesn't make any sense. He's not getting traded. He's going to be with the Marlins. Nationally, he's starting to get some significant recognition. It's pretty obvious at this point everybody realizes how good he is. In fact, on Friday morning, no one knows this yet, but he'll be on MLB Networks uh, live in their studio on their MLB Central show. He's going to be making the trip there. So everyone will have a chance to see him Friday on MLB Network Television in Secaucus, New Jersey. And, and yeah, and there's a lot to like about what he's done. I think that people need to put the trade stuff behind them because this is simply not happening. If you want to talk about anybody else on the team being traded, I think I'll entertain it. But remember, this is the first trade that this new organization, this new regime made. They're not going to punt this player after championing this trade and saying, hey, look at this great trade that we made with the New York Yankees. And all of a sudden, just going to punt this player. Right. So Caleb Smith is going to be here for years to come. My guess is he starts opening day for the Marlins next year. Well, it's nice to know that Caleb Smith will be around a while because there's kind of been some more type of upheaval around the organization. Um, and it's sort of been off the field. And we'll start with Chip Bowers. Uh, Chip Bowers and the Marlins parted ways last week. Um, he was the president of business operations and he was one of what was seemingly the faces of this um, off the field build in terms of he was one of the main faces in regards to the stadium and the uniforms and all of that. And I know he wasn't the point person in regards to those specific projects, but he was the guy overseeing everything and now he's gone. So what happened there, Craig? Yeah, and, and we addressed this a little bit last week. We recorded the podcast before this ended up happening, and then I broke the news late in the day that, that this ended up happening and did catch me by surprise, obviously. I think it caught many people by surprise, obviously. But from people that I had talked to and, and asked questions internally with the Marlins, they, they, had, they really were not that surprised with this. And so that caught me even more by surprise. But I think mm. here's the bottom line and this is my opinion, is yes, we've heard the Marlins uh, CEO, Derek Jeter, say that they're just, they went in a different direction. You cannot possibly expect Derek Jeter publicly 
to throw Chip Bowers under the bus. That's just like anybody throwing anybody else in business under the bus. Right. Chip is going to do a great job wherever he goes next. He did a great job at Golden State. The bottom line is that the Marlins didn't feel like he did a great job here. Hmm. And after a year of analyzing it and looking at the financial point of view as to what Chip Bowers did for the club, it was not enough. It was not what they thought it would be. Now, I was not privy to meetings between Chip Bowers and Derek Jeter and some of the other executives with the company. I don't know what was said, but whatever he said didn't end up happening, and whatever he promised didn't end up getting delivered. And so the question is, did he deserve more time to make more money or help make more money for the organization? The Kind of the explanation that I've understood and been given is that this is just something that they had to pull the trigger on now before they got in too deep with this and, and had a, a man in a position that was not delivering. And so I, I guess the best analogy that I could give is in terms of advertising. There are some people that advertise and in the first year, they know whether or not something's going to work and they decide if it's not working, they pull the plug quick because they don't want to lose more money. Right. That's the best way that I can describe this is that it, it always comes down to dollars here. And, and the Marlins did not feel that Chip Bowers was bringing in enough money or had the expectation as to what they, they thought he would do for the organization. He did not deliver. They chose to pull the plug on this a little bit over a year in. That's it. Yeah, it's crazy to see that Bowers came here from the Golden State Warriors and all the success that the Warriors are having over there. And now, you know, 15 months later, he's no longer with the team considering, you're right, he was right in front of everything we were seeing. But like you said, you know, if, if expectations don't get delivered on, you know, the, the organization has now shown they're willing to make changes. Um, but one other piece that we've seen sort of off the field here in the last week was a story that came out in The Athletic from Ken Rosenthal, sort of delving into Gary Denbo's leadership style within the organization. And for those of you who don't know, Gary Denbo is in the player development and scouting uh, realm of the Marlins. He's sort of been Derek Jeter's right-hand man when it comes to the baseball moves uh, that have been happening here. You know, Mike Hill is the president of baseball operations, but Gary Denbo, uh, we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast as uh, a huge piece in this sort of rebuild and sort of the structure of the type of player that the Marlins are trying to acquire uh, as they've sort of broken down and rebuilt back up the organization on the field. And you know, I'm not going to get into all of the, the minutia of the story, but I would like to know what your experiences have been with Gary Denbo. I've never met him. I've never really had a conversation with him, but I'd like sure. to know, you know, maybe some of your experiences uh, with Gary Denbo. Yeah. And, and first, we'll start with the column that was written by Ken Rosenthal, who is the gold standard for all uh, baseball media in, in really the last 20, 30 years. And a very interesting piece for sure put together by Ken who is just phenomenal at what he does. I mean, he right. is, he's the best at what he does. And so that's, that's why it was so eye-opening for me to see it come from him, knowing the work and the detail that he does in everything that he does, whether it's television or whether it's columns. And so it's my understanding here at this point that some of the things that were written in the column I did know. Uh, there are other situations that I had heard about in terms of employees going to human resources on on Gary as well for things that had happened and wasn't really sure as to what those are but you hear about these things and 
you know, I didn't know that it was a huge deal or put together in a way that, that Ken so eloquently written this column. Right. Uh, but for it, it's, it's my understanding that a lot of these employees are former employees of the Marlins. And naturally, when you lose your job with an organization, you want to raise your hand and say, come talk to me. Come talk to me. I'll take the guy down. I'll, I'll you know, I got fired by the guy. I want to. I want to have my say in this. And, and so it doesn't always come from a, a great place. Also, there were very few quotes directly attributed uh, to Gary in the column. And it's my understanding that he commented on a lot more than was actually in there. So I found that interesting as well, that that, that was used. But again, this is no indictment at all on the column that, uh, that Ken wrote. He is, right. again phenomenal at what he does and this is just the way that he chose to put this together uh, i'm sure there is a gary denbo side to this and hopefully here on this podcast or somewhere else we will get that publicly but as of now we just kind of have to live on the side that was written by ken at the athletic and so that's kind of what we got to go by uh obviously i would never ever condone any kind of fat shaming like that was written in yeah. there and so you know, to me, that was the one thing that stuck out a little bit because that's not something that I can sit here and, and say, oh, it's no big deal. But what I would say is that when a team is winning, you know, you, you look at the leadership style of different people. And if they're just a bunch of hard asses, you kind of live with it because you know that the team is successful and, and people look past it. But given the nature as to what's going on in the Marlins organization, you can't look past it, and it does get magnified, and for good reason. If you're losing 100 or 110 games and, and you're making some trades that don't look like they're going to work out, I, 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 it's just a pile-on job, and I think that's kind of a little bit as to what's happened here. Behind the scenes, I would guess that Gary Denbo, in terms of my work, has been, I would guess, and I don't know this to be a fact, would be upset because I'm someone that breaks some stories and 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 gets trades and call-ups and cuts and organizational things that are happening. I, I could see that, and I can understand that privately. Mm -hmm. But publicly, in all of my interactions with him, and this is just – I don't work for Gary, so I don't really know, you know what his style is in terms of working for him. But in terms of how he's handled me personally and, and publicly with the media, he's been fantastic. He went out of his way to acknowledge my work here on this podcast and my reporting. When I saw him last year, I saw him in spring training, went out of his way to stop and, and talk to me and ask me what I've seen so far and talk about some of the minor league play. And this was just completely unsolicited. And again, now he's coming from a position that here I am in the media reporting and I could be treated differently, but on several occasions, he's been nothing but at least in a brief conversation, very courteous to me. And then the one other thing, and this is not to bring up a positive story to outdo a negative one. And I don't want right. you guys to, I don't want anyone to view this as that. That's not the case. But one thing that I did see in spring training, and I brought it to somebody's attention immediately when I saw it, was because I had heard all these stories of him being difficult and him being tough. There was a, a minor league backfield spring training game that was going on at one point. I just happened to be there i don't even know why i was there to be honest I, i'm at spring trading every day so i don't really know why i'm there but i was there one day right and i had noticed that on the backfields because i pay attention to some of this stuff that there were a couple of fans and again 
older fans, not 12-year-old fans. You know, fans getting autographs during spring training on the backfields. And it's a little bit awkward back there because it's not the best players usually, and it's all kids. And, and it was a couple of, you know, older, not, you know, not older guys. You know, I would say 20s, 30s. And they were running around and getting autographs of all the guys. And then here comes Gary Denbo. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, like, hmm. this is not going to go well. Like, <laughs> and my vision is, oh, he's going to get tough, whatever. And so he goes over to these two, two guys, and, and I'm right there, and I'm paying attention. And he didn't know I was there, by the way. This is completely right. unsolicited. And says, guys, excuse me. And, and they turn around. He goes, my name's Gary Denbo. It's really nice to meet you. He shakes both of their hands. He goes, I want to thank you guys for coming out here. And I just wanted to ask, did you guys get everything that you wanted today? And they're like, yeah. He goes, okay, great. Listen, I hope you guys have a great day again. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> And I was like, wow. wow, like I did not expect that. I, I thought that right. here we go, you know, something's going to happen here and there's going to be some yelling or something like, because this is the perception that I had been given. And I had heard that there was like something on a, a field one time, like a, a gum wrapper and he picked it up and said, you know, we can't have this kind of thing. We're looking for perfection here. And then so here these fans are, and I'm thinking, oh boy, this is going to get ugly. And it was the complete opposite. And I texted somebody, hey, this, this Gary Denbo is like, like just really made it nice for the fans to be there. Now, again, a very small story, right. and this is not to counter all the other stories that have been written because I have heard for sure some negative things that have been said. But again, I can only speak on the podcast to my experiences with him personally and professionally, and so far they have been pretty good. So Hopefully a lesson is learned by everyone on this. There's obviously two sides to every story, but at the same time, I, I think that you, the hope is, is that the team wins and then some of the disciplinary type way that, uh, that Gary goes about his business is, is not as crucified because the team is winning. But right now, Jeremy, bottom line is when your organization is at the very bottom, which the Marlins are right now, it is very easy to, to just kind of pick right. out some of these things that are, are not going well. Doesn't diminish the story at all. A phenomenal column by Ken for sure. But I, I would love to get Gary on the record and have him, uh, you know, talk more about this. And I don't know that I'll have that opportunity, but I, sir, I've, I've wanted him to come on. It's my understanding that, uh, it, in fact, when I saw him, he said he would do it. I have not pushed on my end to have it done. Maybe I will at this point and see what he says. But kind of hot right now, Jeremy. I doubt that he'll come <laughs> on with us next week. Yeah, I, I think the thing that you pointed out here that I have to agree with the most is that it really is about perception at the given time of an organization as well. So there are some things in that article that if you guys do decide to read it through The Athletic, The Athletic, let me just say here, The Athletic is worth the subscription. They're really great. The work that they've done is phenomenal, whether it's locally or nationally. Um, and Ken Rosenthal is as good as it gets as a baseball reporter in general. Um, but there are some things in that story that were just completely unacceptable, like things that I read and was absolutely shocked by. Um, like you mentioned with fat shaming within the organization and things like that. Yeah. Um, on the, on the other hand, um, I think there are some things that when you're running an organization that was sort of like the Yankees, you know, it, it's tough, it's hard nosed in that type of uh, mindset that when you're winning and when you're a quote unquote winning organization, it gets looked at totally differently. Just for that matter, look across town at the heat. 
Like the Heat have been known to be this tough nose, you know, really tough organization. Pat Riley doesn't take anybody's, you know, BS. And it's not exactly the same, obviously. Um, there are lines there, but I think perception can be changed when the team is having success on the field. And so that's just sort of a, a note on that and something I have to agree with on, on so, sort of your sentiment. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll see. The, uh, again, it, it, it's something that we will not be able to judge until down the line. There, it's going to be very hard, by the way, to get current employees on the record right. talking about this because they're going to fear for their job. But, but a lot of good baseball guys were let go. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, when you don't like someone or you get fired by, by somebody or you don't like the way someone goes, the first thing that you want to do in, in life mm-hmm. is get even. A lot of people feel that way. And I've gone through it, going through a little bit of it now. And believe me, the, there's, there's always that part that you just want to stick it to the person, you know. Right. But, uh, you know, there, there's two sides to it. I would love to, again, love to hear more of of Gary's side to it because I think especially from my point of view for anybody who follows me and knows how I cover the Marlins the last thing that I would ever be accused of is being a shill for the team I mean (laughs) give me a break if anybody would ever accuse me of that I call both sides do you think that the Marlins love me breaking every single piece of information that they do 365 that they would rather me not do it? I'm, I'm mm-hmm. doing this left and right. They're going to get mad. You think they love the fact that I broke the chip Bowers was fired. Okay. Absolutely I not. mean, think about that. So I, I think that I call it fairly. And I, I think the fair thing and the right thing to do would be whether it's on this podcast or someone else is if I was Gary, I would want my voice heard. I, I would not sit back, especially with a voice like Ken Rosenthal, with the skills and the credibility that he has, I would want my voice to be heard a little bit. Well, and now we can transition to the product of some of the players that he's brought in and what's going on actually on the field before we wrap this up. And you reported on, on Wednesday that Harold Ramirez was going to be called up anytime now uh, to the big league squad. He's really torn it up at the, at the minor league level. Um, But that also means that we might not see Garrett Cooper who's back rehabbing uh in the minors as well so what what's the deal going to be here with Ramirez and Cooper and the way that the Marlins outfield just seems to be consistently shuffling around yeah and consistently underperforming that's that's for sure too it has been a very very tough year offensively for whoever they've put out there at this point and so I do believe that Harold Ramirez is going to see big league action very soon whether that is by the time this podcast is over or next week or the week after that. I almost used the word imminent yesterday, but I didn't want to because I don't feel that it's imminent. But I do feel that it's close and it's soon. The other thing that can happen is a player gets hurt or something changes, and you never want to really put that out there in that fashion. So my guess would be that when the Marlins play against the Rays at home next week, or even beyond when they play against the Mets. I, I do think it, I, I think we're like a week away from this, would be a guess. And if not, it would be the following week. So, yeah, so that leads to be the question, where would Harold Ramirez play? Well, Brian Anderson has been moved back to third base. That's probably temporary also. They could shift him back and forth, right and third. Mm. But that does open up right field. And Harold Ramirez is a little bit of a plus defender. And I, and I went back and watched some video clips of him. He could play even a little bit of center field. I think that'd be dicey, but definitely play the corners of right field and left field. 
And he could play if they decided to bring Granderson off the bench. He could play left. So he's got the position to be able to play. The only question is, is that once they call him up, they'd have to add him to the 40-man. And so a move would have to be made. They would lose somebody from the 40-man, essentially, right. at least as it stands right now. In, and, and so we'll look forward to seeing that. That'll be soon. In terms of Garrett Cooper, the news is not as good. He is going to have his rehab with Jupiter. But at this point, it's my understanding that the Marlins feel that they want to see him uh, get some real minor league at-bats. And, he's, mm. and I don't think that we'll see him back at the big, in the big leagues for the time being. And, and look, this is really no fault of Garrett Cooper's. He's had some really unfortunate luck. And every time he plays, he seems to get hurt. I, I know that he doesn't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I'd love to see him play and play more often. But at some point, the organization is just going to have to say to themselves, this guy has just been on the injured list the whole entire season. We're paying him to be a big league player, and we've gotten nothing. And you know, part of me says, you know, that's, that's kind of a fair assessment. Right. I hate to see it because I do think that he's got more talent than some of the guys that are on the team right now. But he'll go to New Orleans, and he'll play every day in that outfield. And I think that when he goes there and he ends up playing left field or right field or first base, I think that move could trigger at some point a move for Harold Ramirez getting the call up. So uh, long story short, Garrett Cooper is going to be in New Orleans and not with the big league team hmm. when he comes off his rehab in a, in a day or two. It's just a shame to, to see the way that this season has gone for Coop, especially after coming back from last year's injuries, earning his way onto the spot. I mean, truly, truly earning his way onto the squad. And now, you know, injuries have, have sort of derailed him again. But um, it will be interesting to see Harold Ramirez come up. I know a lot of people have sort of been clamoring to see Ramirez uh, out there in, in right or left, like you mentioned. Yeah, they, they also – will tell. Yeah, the other thing that they have to do is they have to sort out center field, and they really have no other options. So I'm guessing that – the 40-man move, and again, I don't. this is a complete guess, by the way. I, the other things that I've given you are facts. This is a complete guess, is that between Herrera and Galloway, one has got to go. I, I just mm. I, I can't see them continuing to carry both of these players. As we're recording this podcast, Galloway is in the midst of an 0 for 21 with 12 strikeouts. Galloway, one of my favorite guys, a fantastic story, a longtime minor league grinder, but you got to call it how it is, and he just can't even hit the ball, man. Like, right. 0 for 21, 12 Ks, and his name is not Brinson. He does not get that extra time to stay in the big leagues. So it could be him, or they could decide at this point that they've, they've given Herrera enough of an experiment. Herrera was very good against the Braves for one series and has done nothing the remainder of the season. But, Jeremy, the one advantage Herrera has, he has two advantages, one being that he can play the infield also, Right. And two being that if they designate him, there is a chance that somebody else would grab him. I could see that. I don't see that yeah. happening with Galloway. So right. it, we, we could end up looking at an outfield that consists of Granderson in left, Herrera in center, Ramirez in right, and Pete O'Brien as the fourth outfielder, potentially, mm -hmm. I think. And then in some situations, they could put Ramirez in left against uh, left-handed pitching with O'Brien and right, right and then Granderson would sit against the lefty I mean, those are some things at least that are potentially there for you but again these are my speculations not a, not a definitive answer on that one 
Right. That's what we're just going to have to wait and see. And we'll have more on that, obviously, as the weekend goes along, as the week goes along into next week where you'll be back. Uh, We will have a weekend edition of this podcast uh, coming with myself and Michael Sunbake. So you guys will get more analysis in the next couple of days. But uh, stay tuned right now as we have an interview with a really prominent filmmaker here in Miami. It's Billy Corbin uh, and Billy's getting the chance to join us uh, and have a conversation about his movie Screwball. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, you definitely should. It's available on most streaming platforms. Uh, I know it's definitely available on Amazon and it is about the biogenesis steroid scandal from down here in 2012, 13. Uh, And so we'll dive into that with Billy Corbin in just a second. Uh, Craig, anything that you want to wrap up with here on the baseball side before we get to Billy? It's a strange week next week, Jeremy, as uh, another week where Monday and Thursday off games. Two out of the last right. three weeks are like that. So we'll get Tampa Bay next week, and then we'll come back again for the podcast next week. But uh, for now, yeah, you're right. Uh, Billy Corbin, one of my favorites. I've seen all of his work for sure. Cocaine Cowboys, Screwball, the 30 for 30s, Broke, everything that he's done, he's done a great job. And it's coming up here in a minute. He'll join us on the podcast. And joining us now to talk about his new movie, Screwball, which you can see everywhere in the country. Very easy to access. In fact, I purchased it a couple of days ago and watched the movie from start to finish. A very Miami story. So there's no doubt we got to bring in the director of the movie, who also has been involved in some of the best things that I've seen. Cocaine Cowboys, The U, Broke, all these 30 for 30s that he does. And one of the great storytellers of our time, based out of South Florida, Billy Corbin, joins us. Billy, thank you for coming on Swings and Mishes, and how are you? Thanks for having me, Craig. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm tired, but uh, I'm good. What's, what's, what's beating you down? Another movie coming out? No, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work. A lot, lot of documentaries going on at the same time. Gone are the days when we do one, one movie at a time. Now we have literally four or five things happening at, uh, at any given moment. Yeah, it's kind of my vision for it. It's like this gets done, and it comes out. It's a big success, and then I envision you somewhere on a beach you know having a drink and it's not the case you know that's like the, it's it's like that's how i vision it you know it's not the case though no not at all not even not even close there's a lot of other a uh, lot of other crazy miami centric stories to tell I, i'm sure there are i'm sure there are well listen i went to uh i grew up in south florida i went to william jennings Bryan elementary i ended up going to north miami junior high north miami high school and until I went to the University of Florida, Billy, I was a uh, big Miami guy, of course. Grew up here, went to all the Hurricanes games. And I got to tell Nobody's you, perfect, Craig. <laughs> I got to tell you, Screwball is one of those stories, not just a baseball story, but really, as I, as I watched it, just such a story about Florida and about Miami and, and just the way that this developed. I, I mean, there were so many things that I had heard previous to you being able to tell a story in, in the movie, but now I get a better understanding for it. Did you uncover things as you were going along that you were just kind of like, there's no way this possibly happened? All of it. I mean, all of it was completely absurd. I mean, that's the kind of the wonderful thing about the story is it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I, I sometimes refer to it as stupid. Um, you know, it's only only because the decisions that the the characters make, and when I say characters, these are real people making real life decisions. These decisions don't really make any sense in in most cases. They're completely illogical. They're antithetical to the best interests of the people making them. So the the whole thing just 
plays as kind of this this farce, which is why we called the movie Screwball. We 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 kind of envisioned the tone of it and the storytelling in that way, where where we would embrace a kind of um, call it a Carl Hyacin, Elmore Leonard, or Coen Brothers esque take on on this tale of a uh, seminal tale, really, of Florida fuckery. Yeah, it does feel a little like Get Shorty. There, there is an element to that that I could that I can feel here for sure. I, I think Billy, for those people who aren't familiar, who may be just simply listening to the podcast, it, Screwball is basically about uh, Tony Bosch. It's about the whole biogenesis scandal, which inevitably outed Alex Rodriguez as a PED user and everything that went on in between. Did, did you did you kind of look at this story as something that you wanted to do was it brought to you and how did you end up deciding that this was a story that you wanted to tell well it was certainly on our radar from the moment it broke in early uh 2013 the miami new times got a hold of the documents from a whistleblower who was a former steroid patient of this fake doctor tony bosch who is this uniquely miami creature uh, you having spent any time even in your childhood in miami probably recognized this guy just in, in so many of the, the people that you that you come across. He's the consummate uh, Miami hustler, you know, and co- Miami is that a hustle kind of town. Um, you know, we don't really have any indigenous industry. Um, you know, we have a very transient population, a lack of institutional memory. And so we kind of subsist from hustle to hustle in this very gray market economy. And Tony, uh, who was raised by um, Cuban immigrant doctors. Both his mother and father were doctors, and um, he didn't quite have what it, what it takes to become a real doctor, so he went into this kind of gray market uh, world of the anti-aging movement, which was blowing up in Florida um, in, in the, the aughts, and he passed himself off as a doctor and started doing hormone replacement therapy and testosterone, human, human growth hormone, HGH, as they call it, therapy, um, and uh, in this gray market hustle went went very quickly into the uh, into the black market and ensnared, as you said, all of these marquee uh, major league baseball players uh, from Melky Cabrera to A Rod um, to uh, 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 Manny uh, Ramirez, uh, Ryan Braun, uh, on and on. And so, uh, but it all started out as just this kind of Miami hustle, uh, this little office in Coral Gables, and then a little office in a 24-hour tanning salon in South Miami, then a little office actually right across the street from the University of Miami and Alex Rodriguez uh, Field, um, the, the baseball uh, a park there at, uh, at UM, right across US-1. Um, and it just um, kind of <laughs> exploded. And so when we first got wind of it, we were like, oh, this would be a great story to tell someday. But when you make documentaries, you never know when a story is going to ripen, which, which to us means you're going to get access to the, to the people who actually participated in, in the scandal. You know, first-person storytelling is kind of the exciting thing about doing what we do. So we really want to get the tale told directly from the horse's mouth. And you never know how long that's going to take, you know, for people to feel comfortable sitting down in front of a camera and going on the record about what could be a very embarrassing or scandalous part of their life. And uh, as it turned out, it was just a few years, actually, (laughs) that we we had to wait. Um, Not long at all. Uh, But the initial contact was actually in year one. And um, the whole start of this project was when in November of 2013, um, literally about 10 months or so into the scandal, uh, we got a call from uh, a publicist who I knew who uh, his client was Alex Rodriguez. 
And Alex Rodriguez, we went to lunch with him, my producing partner, Alfred Spellman and I, and he pitched us this documentary. It was Alex Rodriguez's idea to make, for us to make a documentary on this subject, this biogenesis steroid scandal uh, and, and all of the shenanigans uh, that, that not only had occurred, but at that time were occurring in real time uh, with Major League Baseball and, um, and, and, and uh, all buying stolen medical records using cash from a slush fund from a convicted felon in a diner the bag full of cash. I mean, all kinds of, uh, of zaniness and, and Florida fuckery that were going on on the part of Major League Baseball. Uh, Alex Rodriguez's uh, private investigators, um, this eccentric uh, whistleblower character, uh, Porter Fisher, who is a tanorexic steroid patient of, uh, of Tony Bosch, who had kind of gets this whole, you kind of dropped the first domino on this whole fiasco. Um, so uh, we were we were interested right away as soon as uh, Alex uh, uh, told us we should do it, uh, and then basically he disappeared after that, and um, we were we kind of put it on the back burner until less than a year later we heard from um, we heard from next Tony Bosch yeah reached out reached out to us um, to pitch us a documentary about the biogenesis steroid scandal. Right. Um, so it was pretty crazy in in a year, and then a few months later. Uh, Porter Fisher reached out to us, who was the whistleblower. So literally in about a year, less than a year and a half, three of the central characters in this you know, international Major League Baseball steroid scandal all independently reached out to us um, to pitch us a documentary. And so we, we realized we had to do it. Yeah. And, and, and Billy, really, the story, I would guess, would have been from a completely different lens had Alex Rodriguez been involved in it, which doesn't surprise me that he is and and disappeared at some point but the lens is definitely without a doubt through Tony Bosch and so uh, if you wouldn't mind let's kind of go through the experience that you had with him from start to finish with this because everyone remembers the ESPN video with Pedro Gomez with him not saying anything and just being defiant on it denials and then hotels hotel rooms you know before his court proceedings where he's all coked out and drugged out and, and just what that experience was like trying to get this done because on camera he seemed so comfortable so relatively easy to work with was it that easy to get him to open up and do everything that he did for you uh easier than you'd think uh, uh now the tough part was of course determining what was true and what wasn't sure. uh, <laughs> making, making sure we, we we kept it accurate because you had cited that wonderful sweaty disastrous interview that Tony had done in the thick of the scandal when everybody was was out to get a piece of him and everybody wanted him to cooperate with them. Major League Baseball uh, was offering him money. Alex was offering him money. Um, and he does this interview where he basically lies through his teeth. He's pretty candid about it in, in the documentary that he had no idea what the hell he was doing. And it turned into just an absolute mess. Uh, but he was basically in the frame of mind at that point that Alex was in when he pitched us in November of 2013. Everything was bullshit and lies. You know, so that, that's basically, like you said, that would have been the perspective that Alex would have wanted us to take on. It would have been total nonsense. And ultimately, Tony was at a crossroads, which was do I ally myself with an eccentric millionaire, multimillionaire in Alex Rodriguez, or an eccentric multibillionaire in Major League Baseball. And ultimately, he went with Major League Baseball, not only because they wound up paying his bills and covering his expenses to the tune of over $4 million, uh, but 
also he said Major League Baseball wanted him to tell the truth, whereas Alex Rodriguez wanted to pay him to lie. And he just felt more comfortable going with the people that wanted him to tell the truth because it's the, the easiest thing to remember. And so um, a great deal of the time, most of the time, I would say, we got the truth from Tony. He was very candid, very affable, kind of comes off as, as kind of a, a likable rascal, you know, <laughs> I mm. think. Um, but we also had the benefit of a lot of um, documentary evidence to back up what he was telling us. We verified it with third parties, um, many of whom were not interviewed on camera, but could verify his statements. We obtained uh, documents never released before, uh, including sworn testimony, um, where you know, under the penalty of perjury, uh, Tony had, had repeated exactly what he, he told us. So we could, we could independently verify uh, some of the statements that were being made. And, and I guess in a way I was, I was surprised how honest he was <laughs> with, yeah. with us um, in, in the back end. And, and as you observed earlier, some of this stuff is so ridiculous and so unbelievable that you, you, you have to you know, confirm that it's, that it's true because it would be too ridiculous if you made it up. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, some of the stuff was just insanity. But, but in the end, Billy, a good story can be told there's a difference between a good story and a good movie and a good documentary. And what you accomplished there took on another life when inevitably, and I've heard you talk about this, when you decided to use a lot of child actors to portray the roles of the people that were in the film. And for people who haven't seen it, they're probably listening and saying, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> so, so can you explain how you came to that decision to say, we're going to have kids play Tony Bosch and Porter and Manny Ramirez and some of the other people who are in the film. How did that come about? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we've talked pretty extensively so far about how absurd the story itself was. So an absurd story kind of begets absurd inspiration, you know, and, and um, we, for anyone who's seen, well, not, not only our sports documentaries, but any sports documentary we've done, we did the U and the U part two for the ESPN 30 for 30 a series and, and for example and so you know you you do a documentary like that and and it's a pretty straightforward process where you have athletes and coaches and people talking about sports uh, you know football games you go and obtain that football game footage and you use that um, on top of the interview footage that's the process you know in a in a, in a very crude terms of putting together a, a, a traditional sports documentary this is not a, about sports this isn't even about baseball I think People mention specific baseball games three times during the movie, but what do you do with the other hour and 40 minutes as far as footage? So you're not just looking at talking heads uh, the whole time. You know, aesthetically, you have to come up with something a little more dynamic and cinematic and, and, and entertaining. And, and so we kind of turned into the screwball, if you will. We turned into the curve and um, decided to, to uh, adopt this style where because we didn't have footage of all of these shady dealings that took place in, you know, fake doctors, clinics, and uh, hotel rooms, and nightclubs, and sports bars, that we would reenact them, which is a very traditional documentary trope, you know, having actors portray sure. the people and doing flashbacks, you know, of the actual uh, scenes that are being described. So, um, but uh, instead of just actors, we got eight, nine, and 10 year old actors who have you know, are wearing wigs and facial hair and police uniforms and um, pinstripes and uh, doctors, uh, you know, lab coats and, and stethoscopes and things. And, and what they're actually doing is they're lip syncing the dialogue directly from the horse's mouth, right from our interview subjects who are 
who were very vivid storytellers and who would tell stories in dialogue where they were like, you know, um, I walked into his office and I said, I want my money. And he said, I don't have your money. And I said, well, you better get my money. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I, everybody talked that way. A bunch of our, our interview subjects, especially Tony Bosch and Porter Fisher, are two primary uh, stars. Um, and I realized oh, shit, we could drunk history this, you know, with the lip syncing. And, and the only difference would be is the actors would be children. And uh, it, it made sense to me because everybody in the story acted like a child. Uh, <laughs> you can attest to that. You've seen it now. Yeah. Um, and it just struck me that that would just be the best way to tell this particular story. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't really know when, when you have an opportunity to have a story that's this ridiculous where, you know, you can, you can use a device, uh, <laughs> a device like this. And, and, and Billy, everything that you've done has been gold. I mean, there's no doubt. I've seen, I've seen everything Thank that you've you. done. This is actually the first uh, film of yours that I didn't see up until like a couple of days ago. I think I saw them all when they first came out. Like I was so, into it and then you know now i have radio shows and kids and podcasts and it's like oh billy's coming on let me make sure that i that i watch this which, which kind of leads me to uh, my my next topic here which is and by the way you can download screwball on itunes you could rent it you could buy it and you can get it anywhere online just like you buy any other movie it's just very easy to access it took me five minutes and i watched the whole thing in one night didn't even need to binge it but billy of course also the director of what really I think, I don't, fair or unfair, I don't know, Billy, brought you to prominence with Cocaine Cowboys. I think that was really the first, the first documentary, at least that I had heard of you at that point. And ironically, I wanted to bring this up today on the podcast because I, many, many years ago, Billy, I used to live in a building in Aventura. And <laughs> I wasn't married at the time, but my future wife did actually live in the building. We ended up getting married, and here we are 15 years later. So I think we're going back like 12 years. And there is this man who's living in the building, and he is married to this very good-looking girl. And every day we're at the pool, and I'm getting to know him, and he's talking about how they're going to make a movie about me, and you don't know who I am, and I'm the snowman, and my name is John and I was involved in the biggest cocaine in the world. And you're going to get, you're going to see it. You're going to, and we, and me and, and the other people, you know, I'm friends with people in the building. They're all, and I'm, we're all doubting this guy. And I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. We're Googling. I don't even know if we were Googling. It may have been Yahoo a Bing. I don't know. We're online. We're checking it out. <laughs> and it turns out that the guy is John Roberts. And I end up seeing him in the, in the film and, that, that you put on and every and I was just shocked I was like wow he was completely telling the truth about all this because you can imagine I'm living in the same building as this guy the shenanigans that I saw going on uh I mean were incredible in fact Billy one time he had me come up to his apartment and I had remembered that his girlfriend or his wife I believe was her name was Melissa had said whatever you do don't tell him anything don't be friends with him because all he's looking to do is get people in jail because he's working for the, and again, this is another story that I'm hearing. I'm like, there's no way any of this is true. And it all was true. And, and I'm sorry to be long-winded with it, but it was just amazing to me that John Roberts was the guy, rest in peace, that was really one of the main characters in your Cocaine Cowboys film that I knew. And I doubted him the whole time. So if you, you'll appreciate this more so than anybody else that I've ever told this story to before. But the first time I met John Roberts, it was arranged by my second cousin, David Ross, who is a co-executive producer of, of Cocaine Cowboys, uh, in no small part because he arranged this 
this very introduction with Albert Spellman, my producing partner, and I, and John Roberts at the pool of Park Central Aventura. Yeah, the Bay Club. Yeah, it was the Bay Club at the and time. Yeah. In the, and we, I believe you're right, it was the Bay And we met him at the pool. There was a little concession there. We got some yep. hot mm-hmm. dogs or something right by the yep. pool. And we sat there because Dave, my cousin Dave, met John sitting at the pool, just as you did, struck up a conversation with him and called me up. Alfred, our partner, David Sipkin, and I had all, uh, we had gone to Sundance with our first documentary, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent. Uh, actually, a, a Gator story, a University of Florida story, which you haven't seen it. Uh, I will send it to you as a proud alum. And um, okay. he, you know, he knew that we were documentarians, of course, and said, oh, you guys interested in, in, in meeting this guy? And Alfred had on our list for some time a documentary called City Made of Snow, uh, which was to be about Miami in the, uh, in the cocaine era uh, and how the, the trickle-down economics of the, the narco dollars uh, uh, essentially built the city as we, we knew it and loved to hate it today. And so we said, oh, sure, let's, this, this could be an interesting uh, angle. And so that's how the, the movie was born, at the pool in Aventura, of your building. Yeah, <laughs> basically, is how it all is how it all started. Um, I think uh, by a lot of people have, uh, and and that was all true as well. I believe that you're right. Is that John was was working for whatever reason? I guess I guess because when you uh, set somebody up um, like that, you get a piece. I think it's twenty or twenty five percent of the money seized by the government in in such an arrangement. So I think you're right. I, I heard stories as well that he was making his living in no small part. Uh, that way so yeah, yeah absolutely in fact in fact if i remember correctly he was asking me if if, if i could get him stuff and i'm like why oh, would you ask sure. yeah and i'm like why would you ask me this and i think he was changing a diaper at the time billy like literally this was this right, was all a young way. son yeah he, a young had a, son. he had a young son he kept throwing his phone in the pool and he would get mad it's happened over and over again and, and I just, me, and, 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 and this guy was like, imagine, Billy, I'm thinking to myself, this guy is the biggest liar I have ever met. I mean, he's, this, he's like bumbling, honestly, bumbling a little bit. You know, his kid is throwing the phone yeah. in the pool. He's tanning. He's got this woman there who's, I mean, it's just like, I'm like, this has got to be. A I will tell you, he was, he was even harder to vet than Tony Bosch was. I'll, 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 I'll tell bet. you that right now. And yeah. here's a funny story that John told us that, um, made the cutting room floor. Uh, he, when he first got out of prison, um, he uh, was going to go to a bank where he had put in a rather large uh, safe deposit box, a million dollars in cash. <laughs> and so he gets released from, from federal prison. But his first stop is a strip club, okay? And <laughs> he goes to a strip club and he picks up one of the dancers using the line, uh, have you ever seen a million dollars cash before? And she says, no. And he says, let's, let's go for a ride. So they go for a ride, I think in her car, uh, along, I think it was 441. And he goes to where the bank was. And there's like a parking lot and a new shopping plaza there. And he goes, oh, shit. He runs to the payphone. First, he asks the stripper for a quarter to use the payphone, <laughs> goes to the payphone, uh, calls the bank. They forward him on. They say, oh, no worries, Mr. Smith, or whatever fake name he had given them. Uh, all of the safety deposit boxes from that branch had been moved down the street when we 
when we shut it down and, you know, they paved it over. Uh, everything's still there. It's You just have to go just a, a mile or so away to another branch location. Great. He goes rushing over. Uh, he asks to see his safety deposit box. Mr. Smith, it's here. There's just one problem. Uh, there is an outstanding balance. You owe us two, $300, whatever it was in back pay, you know, on the safety deposit box. Right. John looks, John looks at the stripper. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. He goes, I'll pay, I'll pay you back. I'm about to get a million dollars. She goes, fine. She counts out the hundreds of dollars. I presume in in singles on the <laughs> bank manager's desk. <laughs> they go into the safety, you know, the safety deposit box room. The bank manager pulls out the, the large drawer, whatever the hell it is and uh, hands it to John. First thing John notices is there's red tape around the perimeter of the box once it's slid out. And the second thing he notices when the bank manager hands it to him is it's a whole hell of a lot lighter than he left it. And he opens up the lid. The box is empty, but for a single eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, the letterhead is the Internal Revenue Service. And it says, Dear Mr. Smith, if you'd like to discuss the contents of this box, please contact Agent Jones at 305, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. John's next call was to his attorney who advised him to consider it back taxes and not to bother with it. Yeah. And that was, that was the end of John's million-dollar million dollar haul out of prison. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, really just it, it blew my mind to see him in that film. And then I heard he passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, I certainly hope his his uh, his widow and his and his son are are doing fine too. I've obviously had no contact in fourteen years or fifteen years. Uh, Billy, last thing they didn't they didn't, yeah, they didn't invite you to the bar mitzvah. <laughs> no, I was I was All not right. in, I was not invited. I heard everyone wore white though. I heard everyone wore white. <laughs> um, so so here's a question. I don't I don't know if you can answer this, and and I don't mean to blindside you with this question, but. So many people have inquired, I know to you both on social media, and I've heard you in interviews, and I think that you've alluded to it sort of about potentially telling the story of Jose Fernandez. And I don't know if that's something that you are planning on doing or you want to do, but I, I feel like you are the one to tell the story if someone is going to do it. Is, is that a plan? Is that something that you can talk about at all? And I apologize if not. I just felt like I wanted to end no. with that considering it's a Marlins a themed podcast. No, it's uh, it's fine. Um, uh, it's certainly a dream project. I'll put it to you that way. And and it's it actually it's a callback to to something we had discussed earlier, which is you know sometimes these stories need time to ripen. You know, you you you. I mean, I as soon as I I heard what happened, uh, I had an incredible flashback because uh, both of my producing partners and I. Uh, Alfred Spellman, David Sipkin, and I were on a boat. Um, my family's little 23-foot 20, formula um, out on the water uh, sometime in the early zeros, I think it was. And we were racing down, took the Atlantic to a government cut yeah. southbound, and um, we nearly crashed into the jetty. And it was a particularly memorable and scary night. We were stone-cold sober, and it was still – a very scary and vivid, <laughs> vivid evening and very easy to do because there's no lights out there. You just gauge your distance off the coast. You know, you look at the, the lights of South Beach and say, are we far out enough? You know, um, 
and we thought we were, and I was just gunning it full throttle, which to be fair on that boat was probably only about less than 30 miles an hour, but on the water, that's quite fast. And I was squinting against the, the windshield and I, the, the water was spraying up and I was leaning forward trying to see and, and Alpha was screaming, oh, we're fine, we're fine, we're good, go ahead. And finally, something caught my eye and I threw the throttle back into neutral and the boat very quickly came to a stop and maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 yards, 40 yards ahead of us was the jetty. And what I had seen, just a wall, it was low tide, so it was just a wall of, of rocks in front of us. We, we wouldn't have even jumped it. We would have just disintegrated probably against it. And, um, you know, a lot of times boats kind of jump it and, and you, you know, they, they, you know, flip or something, but we would have just cra- uh, disintegrated. And so I remember it was terrible. We just, it was, I believe it was the moonlight had reflected off of a, a breaking wave, you know, the foam of a breaking wave against the, the rock. And that's what I had seen in front of us. And I just kind of were idling there, just kind of silently looking at each other in this wall. And then I cut the, <laughs> I cut the, the wheel to the, uh, to the east and we just cruised out to the end of the jetty and then back around through government cut. But so I could immediately relate to the circumstances of his tragic uh, death. And then uh, of course, you know, it being such an extraordinary uh, uh, immigrant success story, you know, uh, which is in a very Miami, especially in baseball, a very beautiful Miami tale. Um, and, you know, he didn't have all of the circumstances surrounding his, uh, you know, his condition that evening. But truth be told, it only makes it a more Miami tale in, in, in its way, you Absolutely. know, of, of, a young, of a young man becoming successful and, and celebrating his success through conspicuous consumption and, and, and some, you know, illicit drug use. So it's not, it was not, people said, oh, were you shocked? Were you surprised? I was like, I would have been surprised if he was sober or, you know, didn't have drugs in his system. Uh, I don't think it really uh, made a difference one way or another, because as I said, I was sober and, and nearly struck that, uh, that jetty. But um, I just think it's, considering the tragic circumstances, considering that, you know, in the aftermath, there was some controversy involving, of course, the, the illicit drug use and the litigation. You need a little bit more time to pass, I think, before we can really look back and put it into perspective. So as, as bullish as I am and passionate as I am about telling uh, the story, I, I think that we, you know, it's, it's something that requires a little more distance. Sure. Well, Billy, listen, Screwball was great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. And I would encourage people to download it and watch it immediately, as well as all the other great things Billy's done, especially Cocaine Cowboys, which to me was was one of the best documentaries of all time. Just and and hit home for me knowing someone in it, of course. But but just seeing how that <laughs> went was just such a well done story. Thank you again, Billy. Really appreciate the time and uh, best of luck on your next venture. Appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for paying to see Screwball. I appreciate it. (laughs) No problem.